Acts chapter 12, starting at verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. Immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and told uh, and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. The people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Well, this passage is so deep, and there's so many different layers to this passage. I'm having trouble uh, kind of where to start or where to go with this passage. It's such a rich passage, so deep in meaning. But I think this first, this kind of, this passage underlies a mistake, an error, a fallacy that we sometimes believe. And that fallacy is that fear or anxiety is primarily circumstantial. That is, fear and anxiety are caused by the things that happen to us in our life. If someone asks us, why are you worried or why are you anxious about something, the answer that we give them is, because I have a job interview tomorrow, because uh, I'm not feeling well, or I'm worried that this or that happened, or I'm worried about my child. And whenever we give answers to those questions, they're always 
circumstantial, but I would submit to you that the primary thing when we're dealing with fear and anxiety is not the circumstances, it's how we respond and how we interpret those circumstances. Remember years ago, I was about, I think about eight years old, and me and my mom and brother had gone out somewhere. I don't know where my dad was. He was probably at work or something. And we get back home, and it was dark out. We pull into the garage, and then we go through the garage door into the kitchen. And then my mom says to me in this kind of nervous tone, she's like, did you open the front door? I said, no, I didn't open the front door. And then I go and I look down the hallway, and this image is forever seared in my mind. I see the door wide open. I think it was windy outside and dark out. And then all of a sudden, this terror overcame us, and we thought somebody was in there breaking in and going to get us. So I was like, quick, get in the car. So we run back into the garage, and we pull out, and we're waiting in the driveway, and we call the police and call some family members. And I remember my uncle came, who I think lived nearby at the time. And I remember sitting on his lap and just shaking uncontrollably because I was so terrified about what was happening in the house. Of course, the police came and they didn't find anybody in the house, didn't find anything disturbed. Apparently, I had left the door open before we had left and my mom didn't realize it. And so I'm terrified about a door being opened. And I interpreted that door being opened as... Someone's in our house. Someone's going to kill us. We better get out of here. I could have looked at that door and said, well, someone must have left the door open. Let's just go shut it. It's not just our circumstances that determine our level of fear or our level of anxiety. Of course, they play a part, but it's also how we interpret those circumstances. The passage that we're looking at today, again, there's different layers. And so I've kind of broken up four different lessons today into uh, things that start with the letter P. So there's four P's. The first P is peace. Now let me set the scene for you. Herod Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great was the king who ordered that all the children in Bethlehem be put to death. A terrible human being. But he was his grandson. And now he's regained the control of the king, the king of being the king of Judea. And the thing about uh, Herod Agrippa was he was partially Jewish and partially Idumean. And so being partially Jewish, he wanted to help establish the Jewish policies and, or, and kind of establish Orthodox Judaism. And so he wanted to please the Jews. And so he think, gets this idea that he's going to go and arrest James and put him to death. And he does so, and the Jews are just overjoyed that he would come and he would defeat this, what they consider to be a sect of Judaism, these heretics. And so then he thinks to himself, all right, I'm going to go to the next person in line. And so he gets Peter. Thankfully for Peter, it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so he puts him in prison, and he's intending most likely to bring him out at the time when the Passover is over, and then to put him to death. And we see that it's the night before Peter is about to be put to death. We see he's between two soldiers, chained hand and feet, most likely. And you'd think at this moment he would be terrified. You'd think at this moment he would be filled with anxiety, wondering about how he was going to die, what he was going to experience, maybe getting a last will and testament together. 
maybe praying with all of his might that he would be saved. You think he would be terrified. And yet, what is he doing? He's out cold. He's asleep, and he's in such a deep sleep that even when the angel comes and rescues him, the angel comes, gets him up, and he's walking around and going out of the prison. He doesn't even realize that he's awake. He's that in that deep of a sleep. I mean, it's remarkable that during these circumstances that he could find himself sleeping like that. I mean, I don't want to read too much in the text because the text doesn't give us much explanation, but it appears that he has an incredible amount of peace that he could sleep at a time like this. Reminds me of the time when Jesus was sleeping when there was a great storm in the boat. The disciples are freaking out and yet Jesus is sleeping. Perhaps Peter knew what the Apostle Paul knew, that if he died, he would be with Christ. And if he lived, it would mean faithful service. Psalm 127 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. God did not intend for our circumstances to determine our well-being. He didn't intend for us to live lives of perpetual fear and anxiety. Of course, I'll be the first to tell you it's easier said than done sometimes. But God's intention is for us to rest in Him. Knowing that He has everything under control. Knowing that He's there even in the midst of the most terrible circumstances. And Peter demonstrates that heart of peace. Being able to sleep in this difficult time. This leads us to the second P. Purpose. God has a specific plan for each and every one of us. And it's specific to us. From the outside, we can look at this passage and think about Peter and his struggle. And we think, of course Peter should trust in God. He's going to be saved. But what about James? Was James any less faithful? Did James follow God any less? And yet James wasn't saved. James was put to death. Why was he put to death? Why was Peter spared for a time? We don't know for sure. We don't know. And life is like that sometimes. Sometimes the people who follow God the closest are the people who suffer the most. Why do some people have to deal with cancer and other chronic illnesses and other people don't? We don't know why those things happen. This past week I went to uh, the Mercy Me concert at the Key Bank Center. And in between sets... Uh, Bart Miller was telling about his 17-year-old son who was diagnosed with uh, diabetes when he was two years old. And it's been a real struggle for them. It's a chronic illness, will never go away, and they've had countless doctor's appointments and whatnot. And he described how every time they would go to a doctor's appointment, it would kind of remind them of that fact that this was never going to change and they'd have to always deal with it. So every time they would go to a doctor's appointment, they would get a little bit discouraged. And one day, after going to the doctor's appointment, they met this kind of overly happy Christian. This kind of Christian that throws out trite phrases and is always happy even when you shouldn't be happy. And she starts asking him about what's going on, and he starts describing what's going on and the illness that he has. And she's like, let me stop you right there. Let me stop and I want to pray right now that your son would be healed. 
And Miller had said that when she said that, it kind of made him angry. He didn't say anything in response, but he thought to himself, I mean, do you really think that that's kind of a novel idea? That after all these years, I haven't thought of the fact that maybe I should pray for my son? And he went on to describe how nearly every moment that his son has been alive, he's been praying that he would be healed, and yet God chooses for some reason not to heal him. We don't know why that happens. But we trust that God is good, that God has a purpose for each and every one of us, a purpose that's individual. Remember the story about how Peter denied Jesus three times. Then Jesus meets Peter near the Sea of Galilee, and he tells Peter some startling things. Look at what he says in John chapter 21. Truly I, truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple who Jesus loved following them. The one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Peter, Jesus tells Peter that one day he's going to be put to death for the cause of Christ. And Peter's like, well, what about that guy? What's going to happen to him? Is he going to suffer just like I have to suffer? And Jesus says, don't worry about him. Just worry about what I've called you to do. That's what we need to do. We need to worry about what God has called us to do. We can't worry about what he's called other people to do. Sometimes he asks us to go on the road of suffering. Sometimes he walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes he might even choose to take us or our loved ones home prematurely. Who knows, we might be like Peter, we might get delivered, or we might be like James and experience suffering. So that's the second P, purpose. We see the third P in this passage, prayer. I believe that in this passage, the early church does one thing right and one thing wrong. The first thing they do right is they pray with all of their hearts. Verse 5 says that earnest prayer is being offered for Peter. Verse 12 says that when Peter comes to the house of Mary, it's probably the middle of the night at this point, and they're still up praying that Peter would be rescued. And so they have this earnest heart of prayer. I wonder, do we have that earnest heart of prayer? And I would submit that oftentimes we don't. You know, you think about the ancient Jews, and often when they wanted to pray fervently, what they would do is, one thing they would do is put on sackcloth and ashes, or they would fast, abstain from food. And in fasting, they were saying to God, I need to hear from you so badly that I need to hear from you more than I need to eat or fulfill my bodily needs. Do we have that kind of heart? Do we have that kind of earnestness in prayer? Sometimes, you know, our prayer life is like we say prayers to God as we're kind of drifting off to sleep. Or we say prayers just when we're doing other things. Do we have that earnest heart of prayer? What would it look like if all of us came together and prayed with all of our hearts? Mark Batterton, Matt Batterson tells a story of a man whose prayer changed the world, and it was the inspiration of his book, The Circle Maker. In uh, the first century B.C., 
there was a great famine on the land of Israel. And it was kind of, there was a risk of a whole generation dying. And so they asked a Jewish sage by the name of Honi to pray that God would send rain. And what he did became legendary. He came, he went outside and had this great faith. And he drew a circle in the sand. Then his prayer is recorded in the Talmud, and he said this. He said, Sovereign Lord, I swear before your great name that I will not leave this circle until you have mercy upon your children. As his prayer ascended to heaven, rain came down upon the earth, and the famine was alleviated. He's credited as having the prayer that saved a generation. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, once said this. Far away from the Bible's example are most people when they pray. Prayer with earnestness and urgency is genuine prayer in God's account. Alas, the greatest number of people are not conscious at all of the duty of prayer. And as for those who are, it is to be feared that many of them are very great strangers to sincere, sensible, and affectionate and emotional pouring out to their hearts or souls to God. Too many content themselves with a little lip service and bodily exercise mumbling over a few imaginary prayers. When the emotions are involved in such urgency that the soul will waste itself rather than go out without the good desired, there is communion and solace with God. And hence it is that the saints have spent their strength and lost their lives rather than go without the blessings God intended for them. So that's what they do right. They have a heart that's fervent and urgent in prayer, praying for Peter. So they're doing that, but then there's something else in this passage that I find very, very surprising. Peter is released from prison. The angel uh, arranges for him to be released from prison, and then he goes to the house of Mary, knocks on the door, and it's kind of humorous how it plays out. This servant, Rhoda, goes and she answers the door, and she's so happy that she forgets to let Peter in. And so she goes and tells the people who are there, Peter's here, and what do they tell her? You're out of your mind. You're crazy. And the question I have is, what were they praying for? You know, they're praying for Peter all night long with this earnest, fervent prayer. What are they praying for What they're so surprised that he would appear? Maybe they were just saying kind of a safe prayer. You know, praying that Peter would, you know, stand firm in the midst of opposition and have faith even in the midst of persecution. Maybe they were praying that the judicial process would play out and he would be rescued. Or maybe they were truly praying for his rescue but didn't actually believe it was going to happen. Then even after Rhoda insists that she's seen Peter, then they tell her a more naturalistic explanation. It's not Peter, it's his ghost. It's his ghost. And uh, most likely they may have believed that Peter was already put to death and now his ghost had come back to them. And so they give this kind of naturalistic explanation of what happened. It couldn't be that God was actually answering prayer. I wonder if we act like that sometimes. You know, we pray that God would answer our prayers. We pray that maybe he would provide for us financially. And then we get a raise and then we think to ourselves, oh, I must be doing a really good job. We don't realize that God has answered our prayer. Or we're sick and then we go to the doctor and they figure out what's wrong and treat us. And then we're like, wow, I guess I'm happy this doctor knows what he's doing. 
We don't realize that it's an answer to prayer. Sometimes we never see answers to prayer because we're not looking for them. We look for those naturalistic explanations. And the furthest thing from our mind is that God could actually answer our prayers. These first believers, they're praying, praying fervently, but they're not praying with anticipation. They're not praying with an expectation that God is going to answer. And there's a way to pray with anticipation and expectation without necessarily believing that everything that we pray is going to happen, you know, because sometimes there's things in God's will He's going to say no to, just like what happened with James. But we can pray with the expectation that He's going to answer. Whether it's yes, whether it's no, He's going to act, He's going to answer in accordance with His will. Thomas Merton once said this, What is the use of praying if at the very moment of prayer we have so little confidence in God that we're busy planning our own kind of answer to our prayer? Fred Craddock tells a story about a young pastor who went to the hospital and he was visiting an older lady who was near the point of death. She was having trouble breathing. And near the end of the visit, the pastor said, so I have to leave now, but is there any? what would you like me to pray for you? And she said, well, I'd like you to pray that I'm healed, of course. This young pastor gasped and looked, thinking to himself, okay, she doesn't realize she's going to die. And so he, she off, he offers up this prayer and says something like this, Lord, we pray for your sustaining presence with this sick sister. And if it be thy will, we pray that she'll be restored to health and to service. But if it's not thy will, we certainly hope that she will adjust to her new circumstances. Suddenly, the old woman opened up her eyes. She sits up beside the bed. She throws her feet over the side of the bed and stand up. And she says, I think I'm healed. And the last the pastor sees her, she's running to the nurses, nurses saying, look at me. Look at what happened. The pastor goes out to his car, gets into the car, and he looks up towards heaven and he says, don't you ever do that to me again. I mean, sometimes, I mean, it, I don't know if that actually happened or not, but I think sometimes we pray, but we don't actually expect God to answer our prayer. It's just kind of lift service. It's just something religious that we do. Do we actually believe that God answers prayer? Hebrews 11 says that, Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Do we pray fervently and do we pray with expectation? So that's the third, third P, prayer. The final P we see is power. Remember how this passage begins. James is dead. The church is being persecuted. Herod is ravaging the church. People are being thrown into prison. There's great fear. It looks like there's no signs of anything changing. Peter is in prison. That rock of the church, it looks like he's going to be put to death. And how does the passage end? Peter is released. The word of God is spreading. And Herod is dead. That demonstrates the incredible power of God. How he turns the situation on its head. How in a moment God can change any circumstance. Isaiah 40 verse 15 says this, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. 
and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastland like fine dust. See, one day this power, the power structure of this world is going to shift and Jesus is going to come back. He's going to make all things right in just a moment. He has that kind of power. Things that we think are impossible, He can do in just a moment with just a word. And one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He can change any circumstance. So we see four Ps. Peace, purpose, prayer, power. How do we sum all of this up? I think sometimes we, our faith is not strong enough and our prayers are not big enough. Sometimes our faith is not strong enough and our prayers are not big enough. Sometimes our faith is not big enough to believe that God is in control of our circumstances and so we're filled with fear and anxiety rather than resting in all that He has for us. Sometimes our faith is not big enough to believe that God has a purpose in our lives even when it doesn't make sense to us. Sometimes we don't pray fervently. It's just lip service. It's just something we do. We don't pray with all of our hearts. Sometimes we don't pray with anticipation, with expectation, expecting that God is going to act. Sometimes we don't actually believe that God's power is stronger than anything this world has to offer. And then in a moment, He can overturn the power structure of this world. But this passage reminds us that we serve a great and mighty God. A God who's in control of the world. A God who's greater than we can ever imagine. Who acts in accordance with His will. That even when we pray good prayers, He can answer in ways that are beyond our expectation or imagination. In the book Prince Caspian, written by C.S. Lewis, uh, young girl Lucy enters back into the magical world of Narnia once again. And once again, she sees Aslan, who is kind of who is a lion and kind of this Christ figure. She hasn't seen Aslan for a while, and she meets him with a warm embrace. And then she says to him, "Aslan, you're bigger now." And Aslan looked at her and responded this way. He said, Lucy, that's because you're older. You see, Lucy, every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. That's a picture of what it looks like to walk with God. The more we get to know Him, the bigger He seems. The greater He seems. The more powerful He seems. I'd like to close by reading a psalm of praise to the Lord. Psalm 145 that extols the greatness of who God is. Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall command your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. 
All your works shall give you thanks, O Lord, and all the saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion rules throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all His words and kind in all His works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. All, he also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. God, we thank You for being the great God that You are. We thank You that each day that we get to know You, we never figure You out. That each day that we get to know You, You seem bigger and greater than we ever thought that You were. Lord, in the midst of these circumstances, as we deal with fear and anxiety, as we deal with Your purpose for our lives, as we deal with prayer, Lord, I pray that we would realize how great you are. That we would realize that we don't have to do life on our own, that we can rest in you. That we would realize that you have a good and perfect plan for our lives. And when we get to the end of time and see what you're doing, we'll see that plan. We thank you that we can call out to you in prayer, that you hear us, that we can pray with expectation and anticipation, knowing that when we pray to you, you will answer. And we thank you for your power. That there's no one that can thwart your plan or what you're doing in this world. And there's nothing that can stop you. Lord, as we live our lives, I pray that you would be great before us. That our lives would be an expression of praise as we see how great you are and see all that you've done for us, that we would live lives of worship and gratitude for who you are. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you're doing. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.